Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backchat. 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 Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed. You're listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, the freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. And I'm Eden Faithful, stepping in for Swetha today. As always, we're going to give you the news you haven't heard on your airwaves. First up, we have Michael Rodriguez from the Nighttime Industries Association about the New South Wales government's plans to turn Sydney into a city that never sleeps. After that, Backchat reporter Charles Rushforth examines the dodgy dealings around Sydney housing 20 years after the 2000 Olympics. And as always, we want to hear from you. What do you miss about Sydney's nightlife? Join us in on the conversation and text us on 0409 945 945 or tweet us at Backchat FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. So, Eden. When was the last time you went to a pub or went to a live music gig? I honestly can't even remember, but God, I miss live music and, of course, a good old 4am kebab. And getting all dressed up and having really wholesome DNMs with, like, complete randoms in the bathroom. It's the best time of a night out. Absolute best. And the New South Wales government this week has introduced a plan to turn Sydney into a 24-hour city by extending opening hours and reducing red tape for businesses. So we have Michael Rodriguez from the Nighttime Industries Association with us this morning to discuss those very changes. Hi, Michael. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So later opening hours, more late night public transport, the less restrictions for venues. These all sound like good things. But do you think it's enough to reinvigorate our city? I think you've hit the nail on the head there. They sound like good things, but there's always a gap between talk and action and these things are important and now we need to see them Uh, and also they aren't in and of themselves enough there's a lot more things that need to come together in order for the city to get its mojo back Uh, you know we were the sequence of events has been uh, lockout then into bushfires and then COVID so that's a pretty hard uh, three-pronged attack that the city's had to face and now we're only just starting to see um, signs of recovery uh, as case numbers with COVID have come down and and it's good that people are talking across all levels of government and industry uh, but how do we how do we actually bring it together that's the challenge yeah definitely that is a good question but Michael what more can we do in the face of all that so I think there's uh, uh, quite a few things really the in the last week, beyond the announcement of the 24-hour economy um, strategy, which has been something that's been worked up um, for the last, I guess, eight to ten months after the inquiry into Sydney's nighttime economy and lockout, that uh, there was. Um, so, but the issue with that is that it was a strategy that was written that didn't contemplate COVID, right? Like, it sort of COVID came along um, and, it, and and had an impact that no one was expecting. It's kind of why in the last week there's been. A lot of other activity with uh, first the Alfresco Dining Task Force, beautifully named, that I think uh, one of the ministers is leading, which is Dominello. And then uh, there was a summer summit yesterday um, that Dominic Perrottet, the treasurer, uh, um, convened. So the good news with all that is that suddenly, after two and a half years ago, where uh, there was a, there was no admission from government that we had a problem with Sydney's nightlife, suddenly everybody's talking about it in government. So. I think that that's cause for optimism. 
that sort of talks to the government piece. Uh, the other players in the ecosystem are industry, so that's, you know, music, uh, performance, hospitality. I think everyone in, in that sector is ready, willing, able to go. And in fact, uh, worse than that, absolutely needs the economy to come back just to maintain their livelihood. Um, so I think we can expect industry to be responsive. Local councils have got a huge part to play. So many of the planning controls and um, uh, restrictions are uh, within the control of councils. So you sort of need those guys on board as well. And then last and most importantly, it's the consumer. It's the hunter. It's the person who wants to go out but potentially either doesn't have the, the scratch or, alternatively, uh, is a little nervous due to COVID. So all those things need to come together to see the city be rejuvenated. So you've just mentioned how the New South Wales government is encouraging outdoor dining by extending restaurants and cafes into the footpaths and the side street parking. Uh, but do you think this is a smart use of space and a good way to support the hospitality industry? Absolutely. And we've seen this in other parts of the world. Um, um, governments have been able to move quickly to increase essentially the floor space ratio for small venues who are restricted, you know, under physical distancing. That's the one in four square metre rule. Um, so, so there's that element to it. The other aspect to it is that people generally feel safer being outside um, during the pandemic, as in fresh air, parks, these sorts of areas, rather than crammed into small venues. So there's two, two reasons why things like our fresco make sense. Again, the challenge in New South Wales is that um, we've got layers and layers and layers of red tape that have just been wrapped up around almost every aspect of public life here. Um, an example of this is uh, seven government departments regulating uh, noise, for example, complaints. Um, you know, it's that type of thing. It's planning consent. It's, there's no, for example, another one is that there's no, uh, as I understand it, there's no actual guidelines for how roads can be used. Um, for our fresco dining at the moment. So these are all kind of... Um, we've sort of been caught napping is how I would put it um, as a state, whereas other cities around the world have been able to move very quickly to things like our fresco. We've talked about it, but why haven't we seen it? Mm-hmm. And, and what about Sydney's live music scene? So do you think the government's plan will have a positive impact for Aussie musicians? Oh, I can't get any worse, can it? Like, it's yeah, just been sure. diabolical. And it's, um, you know, a really, uh, it's really hard for the music scene. And I say that because hospitality um, and events have all been hit, right? Anything where people gather have been the hardest hit sectors um, outside of the airlines, I suppose. Hospitality uh, represents a huge workforce that also employs creatives, right? Um, whether it be musicians or other artists. And, but at least the hospitality sector has been able to potentially pivot its businesses or find alternative revenue streams. It's been really hard for the music scene to, you know, I don't know, launch an album and tour straight away, right? It's just not... It's just been really hardly hard hit. Um, so, and, and of course, the music scene relies on all that good stuff I was talking about earlier in the call, all that infrastructure and all that consumer demand, Um and support from councils. It requires, importantly, uh, you, you know, people around venues that live around venues to sort of be a bit empathetic around calling the police on noise. You know, it's one of the things that um, we'll have to monitor really carefully. It's all great talk, but the minute that someone 
um, turns on an amplifier and starts playing. If the neighbour starts complaining again, then, you know, we'll be back to where we started. So uh, I'm kind of a perpetual optimist and I'm also a middle-aged man. I mentioned the last because uh, 20 years ago, uh, Sydney held the best games ever as they were referred to. And it's that spirit of community uh, that we need to channel again right now. Uh, it was an example where government, industry and Sydney siders came together and said, we love this city, we want to showcase it to the world. We get that spirit right, and I'm beginning to feel it, Like, and if it, even if it's only because of the political ambition of our leaders. Um, you know, So what? Uh, let's harness that and, and motivate them um, to make things happen for our sector, not just for this year, but for the next 20 years. So by way of a comparison, the music festival industry has said the federal government's COVID support package isn't enough to help them get through the pandemic. So do you think they've been left behind in all of this? And is there something the New South Wales government can weigh in on? Yeah, I think it's a good question. The challenge is that the um, you know, relief just hasn't fallen equally. And a lot of the government thinking about relief has this is a general statement, but it's been tend to be been geared towards larger businesses or businesses that uh, have infrastructure that can access the relief. I mention that because uh, a lot of people in the creative industries are either self-employed or you know small business owners, right, or freelancers. So you know there's been a real issue with people falling through the cracks. That's been compounded by like a general lack of, I guess. Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pandemic, right? So there's a lot of people um, at the table screaming for support. And, you know, the music scene has had, I guess, um, a seat at the table, but hasn't necessarily seen the um, crisis funding that I think may have been promised. Um, so, like, there have been some initiatives. And, you know, there's things like Great Southern Nights, which, as far as I know, hasn't really kicked off, right? This is a November project. Um, and again, I'm not sure how well like that uh, inverted commas relief will flow through to, you know, to uh, you know the rank and file of the music industry. So I don't know. I think that um, in all these things, the uh, that there is just more that can be done, and um, you know that's where uh, industry body groups like APRA and Music New South Wales and. Australian Festival Association are actively pushing government and there was a government inquiry yesterday that uh, um, uh, was held in the upper house where, you know, those views were put forward. So hopefully these things kind of um, keep pressuring government um, and community to help. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Shami and Eden. We're talking to Michael Rodriguez from the Nighttime Industries Association about changes to Sydney's nightlife and live music scene. So the state government says it wants to turn Sydney into a 24-hour city. What does a 24-hour city actually look like, and do you reckon we'll get there? Yeah, um, (laughs) as mentioned, an optimist. 24-hour city really is about flexibility of trading. It's not about necessarily being on at all times everywhere. I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, we should think about. Um, There's a few key aspects to this plan that uh, myself and other uh, industry bodies have been calling for. And one is to just simply put someone in charge. So the government's come out and said they will appoint a 24-hour coordinator general. This is great news because now we've got someone's door to bash down if they're not doing their job. So pity the fool that ends up with that role, I reckon, because they're going to have a long queue of people that are... Uh, in there trying to say, right, uh, we need you to be accountable for it. 
So that's the first part. The second part is this concept of what they're calling a neon grid. Now, what this talks about is, um, I guess, a decentralisation of nighttime from just one or two, you know, the five-kilometre classic CBD King Cross area city. And I like to think about it as a, a liberation of nighttime economies that are already going on in other parts of the city um, outside. So so I'm talking about suburbs, really, like um, so Parramatta, um, Bankstown, Liverpool, these areas. So what the government is hoping to achieve is a um, bringing to life, or I guess seeing the city light up um, in different ways. Uh, so, and, and I think in a way where each area of the city reflects the nightlife and uh, of that area, or the 24-hour trading of that area, reflects the, I guess, the cultural makeup of the community. If that makes sense. So, there's quite a few um, good things to like about the strategy, but now we need to see what level of resource government's going to put behind it. I.e., how much money are they going to invest in this, and who 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 will be put into that role is all key. And then you know we'll, we'll get to work. So you've just kind of touched on it, but there has been some talk about creating a three-city metropolis in Greater Sydney mm. so people do have access to everything they need within 30 minutes of where they live. Do you think it is important to encourage more of a nightlife in places like Parramatta, for example? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I guess there's that three-city plan that kind of overlays this, um, this strategy. And I think it's about, um, rather than prescribing where stuff happens, it's about finding where it's already happening and then, you know, making it happen better, you know. So, I, and, and I think what they're discovering with COVID in particular is that, um, as you know, people have sort of decentralised from the CBD for the short term at least, with, um, I guess, a lot of people working from home and things like that. And there's already a bit of momentum in uh, outer suburbs because they've got, they've got greater audience. So um, in some ways, I would look at COVID as an accelerator of uh, that plan um, as, it, as it stands. So now what you have is some tension between suburbs because, to be really honest with you, there's been a lot of negative talk about who's suffered during COVID and so there should be, but there's also a lot of people who've won. There are a lot of businesses that have won out of this, um, and they who've never seen more customers in their um, businesses than ever before. So think about supermarkets in suburbs. Think about gaming pubs in suburbs, um, um, where you know revenues have been um, have held up and even strengthened as a result. So you know there's already been, I guess, um, an investment in. Uh, social economy or the 24-hour economy of the suburbs at the moment. And now what we're hoping is also to see the CBD, you know, come back to some semblance of its former self. So it's all well and good to make Sydney a 24-hour city, but there is, of course, the issue of safety. So, for example, preventing alcohol and drug-fueled violence. Do you think more lighting and late-night public transport will help with all this? All of that good stuff will, yeah, for sure. The other thing, too, is that I think that, uh, you know, um, without... Um, a sort of like going too far back in history, what we know about uh, consumer habits is that they are changing. People are drinking less. Um, you know, we've got diverse audiences. That sort of, I guess, description of Sydney's nightlife that has been forever such a strong brand for us, which is, you know, police violence, alcohol, lockout, you know, the violence piece. You know, it's one of these things where the pandemic gives Sydney a um, 
opportunity to just reset the clock on that narrative and, uh, you know, work more constructively um, towards a vision as contemplated by that 24-hour strategy, which really should be a nightlife and economy for everyone. So those things that you mentioned absolutely will help. Um, but also, like, what we need to do better as a society is, is be willing to call out bad behaviour, bad behaviour amongst our peers, bad behaviour in amongst uh, venue operators. And even with COVID, you see operators flaunt the law and breach COVID-safe regulations. It's just not cool. That destroys consumer confidence. So we've all got a responsibility here. Uh, venues need to comply with their obligations, COVID or not, and partners need to be willing to call out bad behaviour in amongst their own, um, um, in amongst other partners, and also, you know, where they see it in venues. Let's hope that, you know, Sydney does return to its former glory in a way that is safe for all of us. So thank you so much for speaking to us today, Michael. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. That was Michael Rodriguez from the Nighttime Industries Association chatting to us about Sydney's light knife. But hey, don't go anywhere. Up next, we have Backchat reporter Charles Rushforth, who's going to give us the facts on how the 2000 Olympics gentrified Sydney. But first, we've got a song. This is Young Franco's new single, Two Feet, inspiring us to dance uncontrollably in our bedrooms. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. So this month marks the 20-year anniversary since the Sydney Olympics. And looking back, there was a lot happening behind the scenes. Backchat reporter Charles Rushforth investigates how the 2000 Olympics caused mass evictions, threatened public housing and put pressure on Sydney's homeless population. Check it out. It's been 20 years since the Sydney Olympics. We all know about some of those special moments such as Kathy Freeman winning the gold and Nikki Webster at the opening ceremony. But you may have been too young to have a full picture of everything that was going on. Aside from all the track and field events, the archery and taekwondo, there was another contest taking place in Sydney. And that was the contest for affordable housing. In 1991, Shelter New South Wales published a report warning that by hosting the Olympics, Sydney could accelerate the rates of gentrification in the city. In the 90s, Beth Jewell was working as the manager of the Tenancy Advice Service at the Redfern Legal Centre. Rents in Sydney were already going up as the city became gentrified. Gentrification will happen in most cities across the world, especially if they've got a harbour in the middle of it. What the Olympics did was set a date for a mega event and mega events have been shown to accelerate gentrification, accelerate rent increases. The housing market was already going up. This just boosted it, you know, to um, steroid level, if you like. And the rents just, we could see, like rents used to go up by 2.5% per annum. We were seeing 30% increases in the years leading up to the, to the Olympics. And because the, residential tenancy laws in New South Wales and most of Australia are so weak. You can keep increasing the rent as much as you like as long as the market's going up. So you could increase the rent every 60 days if you wanted to with 60 days notice. And you didn't have to give a reason. According to Digby Hughes, the Senior Policy Advisor for Homelessness New South Wales, the rise of housing prices in Sydney was taking place alongside funding cuts for public housing. The state of public and affordable housing in Sydney prior to the Olympics was better than today, 
but still not in a great shape. One of the problems we've had federally is from the mid 1990s, we'd had a cutback in the Commonwealth state housing agreements. So prior to that, federal governments over generations had put money into the states and territories so they actually build public social housing. That started to be cut back in the 1990s and we've never had it put back. As the Olympics got closer and closer, Beth at the Redfern Legal Centre started to get inundated with callers asking for legal advice about eviction notices. We had such an increase. Our statistics went up three times, 300% increase in people inquiring about evictions and rent increases. And then there were mass evictions from boarding houses. So a lot of people who couldn't afford rent were then not given the option to go to a boarding house where the rents were cheaper. The Christmas before the Olympics came, 50 boarders came in and saw me over a period of a few weeks and they all had this um, eviction notice saying, Merry Christmas, your present this year is an eviction notice. <laughs> True story. <laughs> True story. And these are all people who were old or disabled or had some you know, mental illness. Sydney's homeless population were under the spotlight as the city rapidly tried to find housing for all of its rough sleepers in the lead-up to the Olympics. AJ was one such rough sleeper in Sydney at the time. About well, four and a half months before September, when the Olympics were due to be staged, one of the drop-in centres that I used to utilise in town, the housing officer there came up to myself and another guy and said, oh, I've got a two-bedroom flat offered to us. Do you guys want it? and it's out near Bankstown. And I wasn't even on the housing list back then. Ian was, my mate, but I wasn't. And she said, oh, no, 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 that's all right, that's all right. As long as Ian signs a lease, everything's all right. Well, we didn't know anyone. I didn't know anyone at Bankstown. It was like starting over again. Aside from housing, a strategy was developed to help protect homeless people's rights by the New South Wales government. It was called the Homeless People's Protocol, and it established a set of rules police officers had to follow when dealing with homeless people on the street. And it actually defined that people experiencing homelessness had a right to be on the street, as long as they were not causing a public health issue or public disorder. They're allowed on the street to stay there, and you and I are allowed to wander down the street. However, community groups still feared a repeat of the 1998 Atlanta Olympic Games, where over 9,000 homeless people had been arrested. Beth and her organisation, Rent Watchers, decided to take action. Rent Watch is a group that I'd formed a few years before and our homeless colleagues, all homelessness workers, did start patrolling areas of homelessness and making sure that any infringements of the homeless protocol were recorded. We had educated homeless people as much as we could about the homeless protocol and said, if someone tries to move you on, this is your rights. So we had pamphlets that we handed out all across Sydney and tried to educate people about their rights before it happened. And we also gave immediate legal advice and housing referral to homeless people who were being harassed by authorities. So it, we did run a very successful campaign. Thanks to the efforts of people like Digby and Beth, as well as the government, some homeless people were protected from the turbulence of the Olympics, at least in the short term. Fast forward 20 years later, Maddie Humphreys from the Public Interest Advocacy Centre says the situation facing public housing today is still dire. So in the greater Sydney area, the general wait list is between 15 and 20 years. 
um, that is a priority waiting list. You have to prove that you're at significant risk and you have significant disadvantage. Um, even when you are placed on that priority wait list, it can still take between two to five years to be housed. And these are people who have significant immediate risk of harm are still facing, you know, up to a five-year wait in some cases to be housed. It means that a social housing outcome is realistically only available for the most vulnerable with the most amount of intersections and the most disadvantaged. That means that often people end up being the most disadvantaged, the most vulnerable because they weren't able to access support and services prior to that. So it's kind of a, a self-perpetuating cycle that we find ourselves in. Making matters worse is the coronavirus pandemic, which threatens to especially envelop young people into this broken system. During the COVID pandemic, we know there was an increase in young people who were experiencing homelessness presenting to services. With the lockdown, what we saw was that young people that come from dysfunctional families who used to have the escape of getting outside of the home, now that is that kind of that release was taken away from them with the lockdown. And we saw a lot of those problems within um, family units exacerbating and, and a lot more young people presenting to services. The Olympics proved that Sydney could look after its most vulnerable if it put its mind to it. But 20 years after the party, the greatest games ever, is just a lost opportunity when people are still coming last in the contest for public housing. I'm Charles Rushforth, reporting for Backchat. And that was our report on how the 2000 Olympics gentrified Sydney as we know it today. We've just received some news here in the studio that U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has just passed away at the age of 87. The notorious RBG, as she was known, was a pioneer for women's rights in the legal system, was the second woman to serve on the Supreme Court and was notably progressive influence, having said that the basic thing that the government has no business making a choice for a woman. Rest in power, Ruth. Very sad. Very sad indeed. Well, that's all the time we've got for the show today. A big thank you to our guests and to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Millie Roberts, Nicole Ilyaguyeva, Charles Rushford and Eddie Diamond. We'll catch you all next week. But before we do, we're going to play a song. Yes, we are. What are we playing? Millie's come in specifically <laughs> to tell us about this song. That's how special it is. Well, this one's a request from Aiden and Petersham. It's Wave of Sadness by Sydney artist Matt Cedars. Have a great week. Weekend.